Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, here with Endow's Aaron Keller, and we're very excited this week because we have the director of Endow, Tony Wosley, here with us, and we also have mule deer biologist Cody Schroeder. So thank you guys both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And what we were saying is we it's so rare that we get a biologist in and then we have someone who is formerly in that position because tony you used to be our mule deer biologist always a biologist but you were in cody's position at one point i, I was i uh, served in that capacity for four years and uh, it was a newly created position when i came into it uh, the state recognized a growing need to direct some resources towards mule deer and created that position and I moved into that position from uh, having spent uh, 10 years prior to that up in Elko. So deer really is your your passion. Absolutely. Um, you know in the big game arena in Nevada uh, a lot of different species but for me I think mule deer is nearest and dearest to my heart. And what's not to love about talking about mule deer? So here we are we have a lot to cover. Um, Cody, do you want to take it from here? What are some major things you want to talk about today? Um, sure. We, I can go any direction, but i uh, luck like to talk about conservation, some of our management issues Let's we're dealing with. Let's definitely get into the management. And uh, whatever else comes up along the way. Cool. Yeah. So what, I guess, let's start then with, like, the current status of mule deer in Nevada. Sure. Uh, yeah. So they're, I mean, compared to historic populations, you know, they're down uh, from the 80s. They probably had our peak populations uh recently in the in the late 80s mid to late 80s um had some declines in the in the early 90s had a big winter kill in 92 93 and really since the early 2000s we've been pretty stagnant actually um in, in nevada but west wide if you look west wide you know mule deer have declined in a lot of states if you go back to the early 80s even before that so that's why there are species of conservation concern they're widely distributed but some areas they're you know, down compared to what they used to be. And what are some of the things we have going on right now to help with those populations? Yeah, so we've been investing quite a bit into uh, different aspects. We've been doing research projects to kind of figure out why they might be declining or why they might be doing better in some areas and not others. We've been putting a lot into our habitat management plans, restoration efforts. Uh, <clears throat> for Nevada, that's been a lot of largely focused on fire restoration. Um, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of habitat change due to these massive wildfires we've been having, uh, really going back to the early 2000s. Um, of course, we've always had historically fires, but we've been seeing these sort of mega fires getting more larger and more frequent since then. And this last few years, we've had some pretty pretty big fires in northern part of the state right and that was a big topic we did a podcast at the beginning of october with um lee turner mm -hmm. and that's what lee was saying the same thing is these huge scale fires you know if you look back through historical records they were never that big and so it's changing nevada especially when we're burning over and over and over year after year when we talked to sean our upland game specialist um he was saying the same thing about you know consecutive years of fire 
have a huge impact in Nevada, especially. And when you look long term, you know, our history, our mule deer population dynamics have always been tied to our habitat conditions and going back even further than Cody referenced, going back turn of the century, early 1900s, Nevada had very few mule deer. They were actually brought in via rail car from Wyoming, uh, other states to feed the miners in the mining camps. And we had you know, similar landscape scale type disturbances back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it really set the stage for mule deer explosions and expansions. So we saw mule deer numbers begin to increase in the early 1900s and steadily increase into the first peak, which was in the 50s, and then the subsequent peak that Cody talked about in the 80s. But the challenge that we have today is the same kind of disturbance, you know, these, these huge fires, had they occurred before cheatgrass was entered into the system would have largely been beneficial for mule deer, even if not initially, subsequently as those habitats began to recover, whereas now you have this invasive, you know, highly uh, you know, prone to fire uh, species in cheatgrass, and we see these fires getting bigger and bigger, uh, more and more devastating. So to, you know, expound a little bit on, you know, Cody's um, mention of the habitat work. Certainly we're doing a whole lot more in the fire restoration arena. Uh, a lot of the work that we're doing to, to benefit sage grouse is also having a mule deer benefit, uh, pinion juniper expansion. It's been estimated that there's over three times the amount of pinion juniper in the Great Basin now than there was uh, pre-European man settlement. So that's, that's uh you know, we see this competitive advantage to pinion and juniper with increased CO2 levels. Uh, so as we remove those trees to benefit sage grouse, we're also realizing some benefits to, to mule deer in those areas. That's what's so great about a lot of our projects is you're, it, you don't just benefit one species. It benefits, like you said, it's something that's now benefiting sage grouse and you're finding it's benefiting mule deer as well. So yeah, there's somewhere between 350 to 370 different species that rely on the sagebrush ecosystem. And so as we see these fires, as we see, we lose sagebrush habitats to not only fire, but to the expansion of pinion and juniper that affects far more than sage grouse and mule deer. Exactly. So anything we can do to restore that ecosystem, we're going to benefit a whole host of species. Right. And then something we were saying we wanted to get into is why don't we do more relocation projects for mule deer to help those populations expand? Right. I, I can tackle it? that one. <laughs> I'll take a step. <laughs> Tony's uh, like, there you go. It's you. kind of a complicated question. There are a few states that are doing some small-scale translocations. For instance, Utah, New Mexico have some programs going on. They're largely looking at urban deer issues where, uh, you know, Lethal removal is just not an option for them. Um, they feel like they have actual some unoccupied habitats that aren't currently, you know, occupied by mule deer. Um, they're very expensive. That's one consideration. Um, the, the next consideration is disease transmission. So, you know, we don't really want to be moving deer around as if we can avoid it because we may not know exactly what we have in, in deer. Um, and we haven't talked about CWD yet, but uh, there are other diseases out there that we that we may be worried about. Um, the survival rate is pretty low on 
on these translocation efforts. So they've done quite a bit of studies on these in Utah and in New Mexico, and uh, especially the first year, uh, survival is pretty low on those animals. And then um, where they have these sort of unoccupied habitats where they're able to thrive, years two, three, and four, they do a little bit better. Um, but you've got that um, logistic constraints. It takes a lot of manpower to do those um, <coughs> efforts. And they've got a whole program in Utah, for instance, that, that solely focuses on that urban deer translocation program. And then lastly, we, we just don't have a lot of unoccupied habitat in Nevada where we don't already have deer. And so, you know, moving deer from, say, an urban area to one of these lesser low-density areas probably wouldn't do any favors to the deer that are already there you know they might be already in marginal conditions and it's gonna you know they're gonna be competing with these new deer and and you're gonna see some dispersal and things like that so those are the primary reasons that we we don't move deer around anymore in nevada okay but we do do um captures and collaring yeah yeah a lot of our research are just when we're catching deer we're you know basically releasing them on site and so what are what are some of those projects you well, know. Tony mentioned, you know, habitat projects. So we actually just started a new one this last year in the Toyabis on Carver Bench. So we are doing a, a major habitat improvement project in coordination with the Forest Service on pinion juniper removal on the Carver's Bench, uh, Area 17 in yeah. Nevada. And so we're putting some collars on there, and we've got a research project with University of Nevada that we're looking at how those deer use that habitat treatment area, you know, their body condition, how their survival changes with the, with those habitats. That's, that's just one. Yeah. Um, then we've got some migration studies that we've, you know, we've really been doing the last four or five years and we've been continuing those out in uh, Eastern Nevada. So a lot of work going on to help these populations. So are you guys eyeing, speaking of the migration patterns, are you guys eyeing any more overpasses? I know those are Definitely popular. Anytime we bring up that subject with the public, there, you know, that's definitely something positive we have going. Right. So yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that they we just recently completed the final phase of the Pequot uh, project. So they, we've had those overpasses uh, in place, overpasses and underpasses on Highway right. 93 for a few years now, and they just now finished this past fall. Um, well, they had to do. They actually it was completed in the spring. They had to do a little bit of follow-up work this fall on I-80. Pequop Summit, uh, and those have been highly successful. Uh, we don't have any slated right now that are going to be built, but we're we're working in coordination with NDOT to identify some places where we might be able to do some crossing structures of some type. Yeah. Um, and then there is one on near Las Vegas, SR160 is not going to be an overpass, but there's going to be some fencing and an undercrossing structure for that will benefit mule deer, bighorn sheep, and elk between Las Vegas and Pahrump. And for people who don't have knowledge or background on these passes, could you explain it and break it down what exactly they are? I think one of the areas that there's been a, a huge opportunity to learn about wildlife is with the advent of GPS collar technology, mm-hmm. where historically, you know, you'd see some deer in one area and see deer in another area. And unless they had a ear tag or a bell or a ribbon or something, we didn't really have, historically didn't have a good way of differentiating exact uh, migrations or migratory routes. And so a few years ago, GPS technology was improved to the point where uh, it was affordable, uh, light enough to build into collars. And the department did 
significant amount of collaring uh, across all species, and we really began to learn about uh, the connectivity of these habitats and how animals move from one part of the state to another. And then armed with that information, uh, we could work with the Department of Transportation to place these crossing structures. And in some, some places, it may be an underpass that goes under a highway, uh, but the ones at uh, Pequop on, on I-80 that Cody mentioned, we have two major overpasses over a major interstate, which is significant. And we, we also have, have a couple uh, on Highway 93 north of Wells, um, and it just increases the connectivity. And so with all this additional knowledge and, and information about animal movement corridors, uh, most recently, we saw a secretarial order. The Secretary of Interior um, issued a secretarial order acknowledging the importance of migration corridors for mule deer, pronghorn antelope, and elk, and singled out uh, several key states in the West and directed some resources to those states. And you know, so we're we're grateful to see that. Um, you know, it's it's. It really, uh, it's kind of a culmination in a lot of the work and effort that the department has done to delineate those, and we'll continue to do more research. But these structures are are essential in helping these animals get to high-quality, productive summer range where they, they have their fawns and, and build their fat stores to then get to their winter range, uh, lower elevation, less snow, um, you know, maybe perhaps not as uh, cold so they can conserve some energy it's just so cool to see when i first started here it was a year ago now i can't even believe that but um i saw a video of one of the passes and i just love that that's what we're able to do with the data we're able to collect like it's crazy just how far technology has advanced yeah there's a public safety part to that too we can reduce uh animal vehicle collisions we can keep uh drivers safer as well exactly well, we're yeah. running out of time for the first half of the show, but we will be right back after this quick break. You're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild, and today we're talking all things mule deer with Endow Director Tony Wosley and mule deer biologist Cody Schroeder. And right before the break, we were talking about wildlife crossings. And Cody, I kept calling them overpasses, but you mentioned there's actually a lot of different forms of them, I guess we could say. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two primary kinds. Uh, so, yeah, we typically refer to them as w- wildlife crossing structures, just crossing structures. But they can, you know, there there's overpasses are kind of new to at least the lower part of North America, but uh, underpasses as well have been utilized and we've used those in Nevada as well. In fact, the Pequop crossings, there's some under underpasses, which are basically just big culverts. I was going to say. Yeah. And they have to be built to a dimension that's, you know, got enough to be effective anyway, open space and visual openness so that deer actually effectively use them. And then another important part of linking those is the fencing along the freeways that you might see. So the fencing acts to funnel the animals either under through the underpasses, the culverts, or the, the overpasses. Right, and anybody that's listening, we have, if you go to our YouTube channel, we have video, video of, of both them. the overpasses and the underpasses. Yes. 
um, some pretty quality video, which is, yeah. I think it's awesome. And we have cool. a lot of other videos there too. So you definitely want to head to our YouTube and check those out. Right. And then I guess that brings us kind of to another point is, so we're connecting these, these populations back and forth, their migration routes. Right. What are, and that's part of their habitat too, that we mentioned earlier that that's one of the emergency merging sciences now is, you know, we used to think of these corridors as just kind of a linkage between your, your summer range and your winter range. But it's really all part of habitat. It's not just that they have to cross through. They're really, these migratory herds especially, and this is part of the secretarial order, is finding that there's these things called stopover habitats. So animals along their migration route are stopping over in these key habitats and spending time building their fat storage and you know foraging. So it's really all part of habitat. So those crossing structures are kind of an integral part of not only connecting their winter and summer ranges, but improving their uh, connectivity and their foraging along the way. Yeah, much the same way uh, migrating waterfowl experiencing s- staging areas and yep. and build those necessary reserves to complete their migration. That's exactly what I was thinking, like loafing. So they come off and they loaf and then they keep going. So, yeah, that's yep. awesome. They're all around a good thing. And that all goes back to technology being enabling us to see basically what's happening on a large scale. Exactly. Very interesting. Something else very important that we also wanted to get into is the CWD testing we're doing right now. Could you you guys break down exactly what that is and why we're doing it? Right. So CWD is short for chronic wasting disease, and it occurs in mule deer, elk primarily, and also moose, I believe. Uh, but we're testing uh, strategic places. We have been doing this for years, by the way. And so far in Nevada, should be, I should just say it right now, we have no known positive CWD samples from yeah. Nevada. Uh, we're one of the remaining western states that, ha- that doesn't have it yet. Unfortunately, it started in uh, northern Colorado, uh, I think in the late 80s, I believe, or maybe even earlier. Uh, but it really started kind of marching and spreading throughout the west and um, it can be fairly detrimental to wildlife populations, to mule deer in particular. So um, these chronic waste disease check stations that we've had out, and we're even asking for samples from some of our taxidermists to test them and uh, just to make sure that we don't have it. And in the, on the unfortunate incident that we did find it, we could do some you know management actions to try to reduce the prevalence and reduce the spread. Right, and so in order to get these samples, though, they, I mean, the animal ultimately has to be dead. Right. So we're asking our hunters or our taxidermists to help supply these samples, right? Yeah. Yep. That's what we're asking. That's what the idea behind the check stations are. You know, if you're out there hunting and you're going to be driving through one of these, we've had a few already this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have our biologists out there and uh, veterinary uh, assistants ready to take samples. The samples have to come from a, sp- a particular part of the body, the the brain uh, or the uh what they call the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, so the lymph nodes right underneath the jaw. Right. Um, and, and then we send those off to a lab to get analyzed. And this is strictly research. These aren't law enforcement check stations or anything like that. It's strictly for research Yeah, purposes. I mean, it's biological monitoring. Yeah. Uh, and then, w- you know, we would notify, obviously we take all the hunter information. If we did pick up a positive sample, we would contact the person as soon as we found out and then talk about ways yeah. to... And go and from there. And like Cody said, we we have no known positives in Nevada. It's a brain malady, and the only way you can test for it 
is from from dead animals. Right. It's not a bacteria. It's not a virus. It's a it's a protein, and it's a protein that manifests uh, you know certain um, issues in the brain, and it can be picked up in those uh, those lymph nodes. But we're trying to. It, it doesn't. It hasn't been detected west of us, so it doesn't exist in California, as far as we know, or Oregon, or Washington, or Idaho. There has been a couple positives in the state of Utah. Uh, so we anticipate that if it found its way to Nevada, it would come from the eastern part of the state. So we've tried to target most of our sampling efforts from those areas in the east. And so we've had some check stations uh, in Wells and Ely in an effort to get samples from hunter-harvested animals to bolster our sampling effort to have early detection in the event that it does find its way clear across Utah and into Nevada. Uh, and ultimately, we want to protect both the deer as well as the hunters. Exactly. Right, Any and this is us being proactive. I mean, absolutely, it's definitely proactive. Yeah, I think it's great. Is there anything else hunters should know about to help with this? Um, just keep an eye out for those check stations, and yeah, and then you know there are also some. Cl- I mean, when it reaches, if there is a positive, when it reaches the late stages, there are some clinical symptoms. Um, we don't expect them to see him in Nevada right now because we haven't had it. But, you know, if something were to look peculiar, like animals really emaciated, um, you know, it'd be nice to maybe have them contact the department, tell us where they saw it, and, you know, maybe they'd help us get some samples well, from some of those animals. Well, I was just thinking one way that hunters can help if you're listening is if you have a tag, a deer, mm-hmm. an elk tag on eastern Nevada, you can bring your head into our office and provide a sample. Yes. I mean, it's all voluntary. They can just bring it in. We'd love to get. Yeah. I mean, the more samples, the better, right? Absolutely. And then you could, if you uh, are going to take your animal to a taxidermist, we have reached out to all the taxidermists. Right. Uh, and, and we have a program to kind of compensate for the taking that sample. So you might want to mention it to your taxidermist. Hey, I harvested this animal, you know, in this part of the state. If Would you mind sending a sample in or holding it for Department of Wildlife? Yeah, and all you really need is location to kill or hunt unit. Hunt unit. Hunt unit. Yep. yep. And your tag number. Right on. Yep. That's awesome. Great way to be proactive. Um, and while we're speaking about hunters, it is hunting season. And yeah. who doesn't love talking about hunting season here at Nevada Department of Wildlife? Um, any tips or anything you want people to know as we're getting into the season? Or we're well into it at this point. Or is that just uh, too a bro- broad a question? A broad. <laughs> it is pretty broad. I guess... Um, <laughs> You know, you look outside at the weather, and, you know, it's it's hard to get really excited about going deer hunting or elk hunting when things are bluebird skies. And uh, I was deer hunting over the weekend in the central part of the state and uh, actually saw 70 degrees. Uh, so here it was October 27th or something, and it, it was 70 degrees. And um, still excited to be out there, beautiful country, um, but just have realistic expectations um you know that first half hour in the morning and that last half hour in the evening are by far your best chances of seeing any animals and as as people are wandering around midday with the you know hot sun high in the sky and no precip no snow um realize that doesn't mean that there aren't necessarily any animals out there um and just Keep your fingers crossed for some inclement weather, which always helps hunting. 
for sure. And yep. and I was out this last weekend deer hunting, and there was deer. There were deer moving middle of the day, so kind of like mid afternoon. There was deer moving around, and you know it's not uncommon that as it starts to cool off to have some action, kind of some moving around in the middle of the day. The rut is going to be starting to warm up, right? It's right. November now, so. Yeah, no, you know, I, t- I talk to a lot of people that say that, oh, man, I was out there, you know, and I didn't see anything. And you kind of ask them when, when they were looking. It's usually, you know, mid-morning, yeah. early part of the day, and they kind of tend to think that there's just not animals moving. but And they aren't typically. But a savvy hunter with good optics and just some patience can sit and scan and, and even pick up deer bedded down in shade pockets and under yeah. trees and things like that, and you might catch an antler. And, uh, there, there, there's could be deer there that you're not seeing yeah. uh but like tony said the golden hour in the morning and the evening is when you're going to see them up and around usually for sure um yeah and I, w- I would just ask our hunters to be uh kind and courteous to one another and have a great time you know sometimes we see in these especially in nevada we um it's real open and you can kind of see maybe where other people are hunting you know but if you see somebody going after that deer maybe just move to the next canyon over and you know be nice to each other exactly yeah, yeah. same thing with uh respecting private property yep. um you know when in doubt knock on a door but uh if there's a fence if there's a sign if something's irrigated um you know respect that yeah when i was younger i used to be really nervous about going up to somebody and asking them permission to go hunt on their property but in nevada most people are very receptive to hunting and especially if you're you're courteous and you're a respectful person they'd probably want that yeah then i mean and you don't just walk in and say hey can i hunt your property and leave right you're there to to treat them like another person Mm -hmm. and uh most i mean very rarely do they say no for me anyway so that's because you're a nice guy yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) lots of practice (laughs) Well, we've had a lot of good information in this podcast. Be sure to check out more of our podcasts on Endow SoundCloud. It's also available on iTunes. And thank you guys both for being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Covered a lot of territory. And we also want to thank all of our listeners to listening to Nevada Wild. Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.